Happy Wednesday, everybody. Um, also, happy Mother's Day last Sunday to all the mothers out there. I know I had a nice Mother's Day with two mothers, um, my own and uh, one of my sisters-in-law. And uh, spending out in Midway with family. It was beautiful, lovely day. Uh, actually, actually really cold, but still just a nice sentimental day all in all. On today's episode of Latter-day Takes, which welcome back everybody to another episode, um, I get into Roe versus Wade again. So I covered this back in December per the suggestion of one of my guests, Josh Cutler. So Josh and his wife Taylor are both practicing lawyers, both very smart, well-versed in the law. Josh specifically clerked for a judge in the for the Utah Supreme Court has a lot of experience in this sense of kind of how that whole system works. And they both came on to talk about kind of how Roe versus Wade might get overturned. This was back in December. And here we are now, six months later, where we're seeing it, it basically is imminent that it will get overturned. So that was turned out to be kind of spot on. Um, we go into kind of the details of why it would get overturned and why this all makes sense and how it's actually not as complicated as one might think and it's not necessarily based on morality as one might think and we kind of talk about like who wins here and what is this what does this look like but it's it's an interesting conversation and um i'm happy to have both of them back on again they're very smart they're very easy to talk to uh josh has been on another time when we did these hypotheticals with his brother jake who long long friends of mine um and uh that was just kind of a funny crazy episode but uh definitely not in the same vein of what we talk about this episode and the other episode that taylor and josh were on together um but i think you'll enjoy this one i happy wednesday everybody out there and i'm gonna change up the format a little bit actually again already i know it's already new but um i'm just gonna go into kind of the news of the week and then give my thoughts on a gospel topic uh, specifically from President Nelson's talk from a month ago in General Conference. And then we're just going to go right into the episode because um, it was kind of on the longer side. And so I just wanted to kind of go to get in and just kind of like let it fade into the end of the episode, just like it had been last year. But anyway, just a little bit of a change. And then we'll get back to the normal format next week. Uh, anyway, hope you all enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yes. best cult. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Well, oh, these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. They're all Mormon, right? Yeah. So they're not most drinking. Of it, and they're like not cussing. They're like, Slovis, you stink. <laughs> I'm afraid it was the Mormons. Yes, yes the Mormons, Mormons were the correct answer. Because God loves Mormons and he wants some more. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. All right, so some quick news. Uh, not a whole lot going on. It kind of seems like this week. I mean, besides the fact that we are seemingly entering into the recession this week, is it just me or did Monday kind of just seem like doom and gloom? Like, oh yeah, it's here. We are now in a recession. Now, obviously that's not official, and although more kind of like 
after next quarter, but it's not looking good. Seems like we've all kind of embraced it mentally, and it sounds like amazing timing for me to get into the housing market, right? Which, obviously, I'm being a little bit facetious, but it really isn't great timing uh, to be in the housing market, but or at least entering in this moment. With that said, if I don't plan on selling for the next five years, I guess, does it really matter? And I don't think so, but maybe I'm crazy. Whatever, we'll see. I mean, this jury's still out if I even get into a house. It's still a ton of red tape. Anyway, don't really want to go there right now. Um, Big news in the sports world. Tom Brady got hired on as a Fox Sports analyst as soon as he retires, which is kind of funny wording because they're like, maybe he won't even retire after next season. We don't know. But Fox Sports already inked it. Deal's done. 10 years, $375 million, which, interestingly enough, $375 million is more than he's made in the entirety of his NFL career, at least with his contracts, his teams, obviously through endorsements. He's well surpassed that, I'm sure. I don't know what his net worth is, but I'd imagine it's extremely high. Quite the move by Fox Sports. It was, it was really kind of funny to see how they just jumped on that, and then they announced it kind of right before their earnings report had to be made. So it was really great timing on their part and really a baller move by them. It'll be great to see Tom Brady on that side of things as soon as he feels like he's ready to leave football, which, I mean, who knows at this point. Other thing, BYU basketball, uh, Antoine Davis, who is the leading scorer in the NCAA from Detroit, um, was looking to transfer, and he visited BYU, only to pull a fast one on everybody and stay back at Detroit. Apparently he was leaning Detroit, but then discovered that he was going to be able to do this NIL deal where he was going to be able to help all his teammates, which is kind of cool. I mean, like, good for him for doing that. But it is a little bit weird that he's like, yeah, maybe I'll go transfer. And he, like, takes all these benefits of going to visit uh, universities and then just at the end of the day is like, nah, never mind, I'm going to stay. Okay, cool move, I guess, whatever. Anyway, other thing I want to talk about real quick. Uh, My sister bought me a book a while ago. Now, it's basically a kid's book, but... I actually think everybody should read it. It takes five minutes to read, and it is it has such a beautiful message. It is called You Are Special. The author is Max Lucado, I believe is how you say it. Maybe Lucado. It's L-U-C-A-D-O. And it's a beautiful idea of this. It's this town. It's a village of puppets, and the puppets give each other stars for doing good things or having good accolades or whatever. Uh, just kind of how they ever, however they see fit, or buttons, which are meant to be like you're not doing great, or well, for whatever reason. And there's this puppet who is not a good-looking puppet, doesn't really have a lot going for him, and has a lot of buttons, and is really kind of down on life. And he meets somebody who has nothing, and she explains to him, "Oh, it's because I went to go see this person," and the kind of like the the creator of all of us and it's a beautiful message you can kind of take it from there i don't really want to spoil it but it's i 100 percent recommend it for all children but i think it would be an amazing opportunity for all parents to read it to their children this is obviously coming coming from somebody who is not a parent but i would imagine it would be a nice special moment because it is a beautiful message and the way it ends is it's just i don't know it's very well done um i believe the author is tied to the church of christ from what i saw Um, I knew a lot of people that attended the Church of Christ when I lived out in Texas. Um, Very, very strict interpretation of the Bible. Very, very nice people, at least in my experience. Um, But nonetheless, an amazing message and something that I would highly recommend to anybody that is looking for a children's book. I mean, it's like 10 bucks on Amazon, so just get it. 
Anyway, other thing that I wanted to talk about real quick, and this is kind of what I would like to maybe normally put at the end of an episode, but I'm going to take time to do it for this episode and kind of cover some thoughts that I had when it comes to one of the messages from our very own prophet, President Nelson, uh, in general conference. He had kind of talked about, well, not kind of, he blatantly talked about how to gain spiritual momentum. And he goes through a list of five things. Well, I'm not going to cover all five things right now. I don't really have time. But one of the things I did want to mention was that he specifically said, seek and expect miracles. That was one of his five steps for gaining spiritual momentum, which spiritual momentum, you can kind of, you you understand what that concept is, right? It's kind of like having that catalyst that gives you the motivation to live the gospel in in a higher form than maybe you had been previously. I definitely have my waves of spiritual momentum, but it's kind of like maybe how do we, how do we gain it and then maintain it? That's the, that's the real question. That's what President Nelson addressed in General Conference last month. And the idea of seeking and expecting miracles was a fascinating one, I thought. Because I actually talked about this on the podcast at some point last year. This idea that miracles and the way we perceive them are kind of relative. Like, it's it's all about context, I think. And, and at least in some ways. not Maybe not in all ways. Like, if somebody comes in and parts the Red Sea, yeah, you're kind of like, well... There's really no context that can explain this away one way or the other. This is just straight up a phenomenon and a miracle at that. But what we do know is that miracles come after the demonstration of faith, right? So you have to believe it in order to even see it, right? It says that in second, well, I guess it doesn't say that specifically. Well, it kind of does. In second Nephi 27:23, for behold, I am God and I am a God of miracles. And I will show unto the world that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I work not among the children of men, save it be according to their faith. So it does kind of seem like we live in a time when miracles have ceased, right? At least back from even the early pioneer days, we tend to hear about those miracles a lot more often. Or obviously back in the Book of Mormon times or in the biblical times, miracles were happening, you know, in every other chapter, it seems like. But obviously what is worth noting is going to make it into like the Bible or the Book of Mormon or an old church lore we're going to remember the the stories that are worth noting obviously so maybe they didn't happen as often but we just talk about them more but either way we don't talk about them now it seems like so and that's kind of what i want to like the direction i want to go i think it's a fair question to ask all of ourselves how do you expect a miracle when you don't know what it might look like right so that's something that's just rhetorical that i'm throwing out there you don't know what it would look like so how might you expect a miracle to look well let's go to the children of israel for example God said he would bless them with meat and manna. Well, the meat appeared in the form of quails that descended up their camp, right? And manna appeared as a residue from organic surroundings. So like they woke up one morning and there was a bunch of like, there was kind of this interesting dew-like substance that was, I guess it was more kind of like coriander seeds that were on like the leaves and the rocks and they had to kind of scrape it and it gave them the ability to make manna. But what's interesting is that in Numbers 11, we actually see firsthand, according to the children of Israel, the contrast of how this miracle is perceived, right? They wake up one morning and just manna appears. It's just food there for them, or a substance to create food easily, in a in a place where you wouldn't expect it, right? Where uh, it's not really a natural, uh, organic thing to take place, I would imagine. But in Numbers 11, they say, 
They literally say, we remember the fish, right? So they start to complain. It goes, mana goes, it shifts from being this miracle to all of a sudden to being kind of a burden. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, as slaves, by the way, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes, which they say kind of in a dismissive way, it seems like. <laughs> kind of fascinating. It went from being this miracle to years, fast forward to years later, and they're just like, oh, we're so sick of manna. We want our fish. We want whatever we had back. We want the garlic, all the stuff, all the good stuff that we remember, the onions, melons, cucumbers. Now think about this in the context. This may be an extreme example, but think about this in the, like, water nowadays, right? We talk about water scarcities a lot, like maybe we're going into a drought, things like that. Like I said, maybe it's an extreme example because water has been around since the dawn of time, basically, and manna has not. But we don't really look at water as if it's a miracle now. Having it, we just we just have it and we expect it. But if all of a sudden water was scarce or really hard to find or come across, any appearance of water would be a miracle. It's easy to dismiss something as a non-miracle until the moment we don't have it is the very moment we need it. Water isn't a miracle until it's unavailable. Manna ceased being a miracle as soon as the children of Israel felt like they were entitled to it. So maybe seeing miracles has something to do with gratitude and understanding what we necessarily aren't entitled to and how everything that we have is a miracle. I don't know. Maybe that's the way we think about it. What do we feel like we're entitled to that we should be grateful for every day? What miracles currently exist in our lives? In order to seek and expect miracles, I think we have to acknowledge the plenty of miracles that are currently in our lives, right? And I think we all have to ask ourselves internally, what is a miracle? What would be a miracle? You know, and it could be something very little, but that's just what I'm throwing out there. I don't know, and it's going to be different for everybody, but President Nelson said to seek and expect miracles. I don't think he necessarily meant we're going to have these big thunderings from above that are going to enact certain types of order that we've always been expecting from you know to to give us a sense of belief or whatever for one we already have to believe that these miracles can exist and then from there we have to believe that they will exist and that's the expectation that we see that we're able to see miracles take place but we all have to ask ourselves what does a miracle even mean what is that actually going to look like? Now, that's just one thing I wanted to throw out there. Something that I've been thinking about a lot. I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Um, by all means, please let me know. And with that, I will go ahead and toss it to me, Josh, and Taylor. Talking about the imminent overturning of Roe versus Wade. I hope you all have a great rest of your week. I hope you have a happy Wednesday today, hump day. And that you're looking forward to a great weekend and that you go do something nice for somebody. Love you all. Have a good one. All right, back at it. Recurring guests, Josh and Taylor Cutler on the on Latter-day Takes. Welcome back, guys. I'm so glad to have you back with me again, especially under interesting circumstances because we talked about Roe versus Wade, episode 79, back in December considering the fact that we knew it was going to be revisited by the Supreme Court, lo and behold, it leaked just within the last week and a half that the plan is basically for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade, which is kind of a monumental deal. But what I really want to talk about is the legal precedent that this is really surrounding more than anything, because 
I probably didn't do the best job of addressing that in the last episode because take morals out of it. It's really not just about, I, I think you and I would probably both argue this, Josh, and I don't, Taylor, I'm not totally sure where you stand, but I imagine you're somewhat in our camp that the Republicans who are looking to overturn this aren't overturning it necessarily from a moral perspective, but more from a legal perspective because it was, they felt like based on a bad decision and it's a bad legal precedent and that's what they're overturning. Right. It's not actually about abortion. It's about federalism. So all the screaming that's going on is just kind of noise. It's kind of a uh, red herring, so to speak, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. So well, let's I get into say, that. I mean, okay. let's let's talk about the precedent again, because that's one thing I didn't really allow us to do last time. We talked about like the moral ambiguity behind it all. We talked about kind of how they would even dare decide when a fetus become or like when it's a living thing or whatever, or sentient. I don't know. We got into that. Those are kind of the weeds, right? Because no one can really explain that. Um, I thought it was still kind of interesting with that said, but let's talk more kind of legalities behind it. Okay. Um, Well, I was thinking about a good way to describe the legal path that, you know, that led to Roe v. Wade. And I, I settled on an analogy that I think will be readily grasped by lawyers and non-lawyers alike by a bunch of just dumb idiots that. <laughs> yeah. I want to understand when I talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so precedent is, is important, but often it's like playing a game of telephone going back 200 years. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. Just, this is kind of a hypothetical half-baked thing that I started thinking about, thinking about, and then I had to work. And so I, it's not all the way formed, but I'll start with, you know, imagine there's a case where a, a school, a principal decided to make a rule that everyone had to wear a shirt that said support, you know, presidential candidate of my choice and said, that's the school uniform. And a court gets that and says, this is ridiculous for so many reasons and decides, no, that's, you can't force all of your students to do that. You know, it could be for a freedom of speech violation in the constitution, but in that, in that the court, you know, as it's addressing this clear violation says, you know, people have the right to wear whatever clothes they want, whether it be, you know, a message of their choice or completely neutral. Now you have a case a year or two down the road that maybe a school just says, you know, everyone has to wear blue because those are the school colors. That's the school uniform. A lawyer latches onto that language. that says everyone has a right to wear the clothes of their choice, um, puts that up. The court takes that and says, you know, that's, we've said this in the past, that's precedent. And, and now the right that was discussed in case one that was really targeted on a very clear thing that I think everyone would agree was out of bounds um, has now been broadened to include, you know, taking language from case A that, you know, was there, but wasn't really the core of its holding has now been kind of calcified into uh, a much broader right. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon 
you can't, you know, a school can't require kids to, you know, young women to dress modestly or things like that, because suddenly this right has just kind of turned into a monster. I think that happened before Roe v. Wade was decided. Um, You're basically talking about arbitrary underpinnings, right? Like just because they said a certain thing, then it evolved into kind of like, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah. And it's, it's taking things out of context from previous, previous cases that, I mean, that previous case might be right, but um, it was taken out of context or expanded in a way that probably those first judges never intended. And, and so that's why you have to be very careful when interpreting case law. Um, and that, and that's my telephone analogy that, you know, judge, judge a, a, in the, you know, in the 1800 says one thing and you get 200 years later and the, the understanding of this legal principle sometimes can morph out of control. Um, and so that's why there's principles that we don't have to get into of originalism, um, and textualism that kind of keep judges grounded and allow us to return to first principles. So to your question, like what happened with Roe v. Wade, we had cases that long ago said that states couldn't force parents. We had German immigrants in Wisconsin uh, or maybe Nebraska. I'm forgetting the that um, a lot of German immigrants came into the area. The, the, legislate, the state legislature decided they were scared of that. It's kind of a nationalism that they said, you have to, no one can teach their kids in German. Everyone, everything has to be in English. So suddenly only the German families couldn't homeschool. Everybody else could, if they wanted, that was challenged. And in that case, they said, there's a, there is a fundamental right to, to, to pride. They may have, may have used the language privacy. Um, but they said, you have a right to, to raise your children. It's not specifically in the constitution, but I think everyone agrees. And from the time we founded this country, parents could have control over the education of their children. So now you have that right that is recognized, a right to privacy, a right to child rearing. Um, and 20 years later, it's kind of expanded into another case. And that, that progression happened until, you know, in the early 1930s, 1940s, you had, you had cases about contraception where the Supreme Court said, you know, we're not going to get into a, you know, the bedroom of a, of a married couple and, and say they can't use contraception. There's a right to privacy there. And, you know, use language uh, similar to that. And, and then there was a, and then the case, it just kind of went along until you had Roe v. Wade in 1973 that grabbed on that right to privacy which isn't discussed in the constitution and said the right to privacy certainly includes the right to an abortion because we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, enforce what a woman can do with her body. And you can see the, you know, you can see kind of the law, lo- the logical, how they get there. I think there, there are some huge, you know, jumps that they make, but you can see where they're coming from that, you know, little by little, they've kind of gone down this primrose path. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what led up to, to Roe v. Wade. Does that answer your? Yeah. Yeah. So we were led up to Roe v. Wade because of, I mean, 
like contextually the law applied in a certain way for a certain time and as society evolved the context didn't necessarily keep up with everything going on necessarily yeah like what do you mean by context like the society wanted a different different right is that what you're saying well yeah i mean kind of taking it back to your analogy of like the right to wear the certain type of clothes that you want you know i mean I guess, I guess ultimately what I'm really wanting to determine, not determine, I guess, but address is Roe versus Wade's precedent was based, well, not based, but it was the outcome of somewhat antiquated legal rulings prior to that, right? I mean... Yeah, I don't well, know. I mean, like, that's that's why I have you guys on. Like, I'm yeah. not. Well, I think I think what Alito says. I really liked the logic of Le- Le- Alito's opinion, the leaked opinion. He says that he's I'm he's makes it very clear he's not trying to upend those other cases that came before. He's not. Nothing in this opinion will say that suddenly states can ban you know contraception or impose you know, bans on, you know, certain bans on marriage, things like that. We're starting to see that, by the way. Like, people are saying that rumor that, like, Plan B is banned in Georgia and contraception. Like, IUDs, I think, are, like, being banned in other states. And it's just like, what? Well, (laughs) This isn't true. And this is, but this is where they're getting it. And I think it's it's where they're, they're just, they're missing the point of what Alito's saying is, it's because Roe v. Wade was based on was an extension and a an un, kind of an untethered expansion of those other cases that 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 protected the rights to those things. They're they're saying, oh, because Roe v. Wade is undone, now those other cases are too. It's all becoming undone, yeah. But that's not what's. I mean, if Roe v. Wade was the top, you know, if you're building a tower. Roe v. Wade was a, a brick that was built on those other things. Just because you take off that top brick, it doesn't bring the whole tower down. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and so Alito, I think, is very clear to say that's not what's happening here. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, his opinion is, I think, very persuasive, at least to me. Uh, you want to you want to try and synthesize it a little bit? Yeah, it's ninety eight pages. Uh, <laughs> Only give us like 27. (laughs) Okay. So this is the, I highlighted a thing that I I like. So this is in his introduction, page six. He says, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey, a subsequent case interpreting Roe, have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. And then he's quoting a dissent from Justice Scalia in Casey. He says, the permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. That is what the Constitution and the rule of law demand. And that's essentially what, that's the thesis for his entire opinion. He he goes through and explains why the reasoning of Roe is weak, that it's, you know, that it was a, 
uh, it was a it took some le logical leaps that it even on even in the text of Roe, the the author kind of admitted that nothing it was saying was based in the Constitution that it was it was loosely based on a few provisions that maybe taken together could generally support what Roe is saying. Um, but it, and, and legal scholars haven't tried to defend the reasoning of Roe for years. Even pro-abortion people don't really try to defend that reasoning. And Casey that was decided in 93, 20 years later, upheld uh, Roe in some respects, but overturned it in others. And really said, we're not going to defend the reasoning, but stare decisis, you know, our respect for precedent requires us to uphold it. Alito criticizes that decision because it said, you were, you said stare decisis doesn't allow you to overturn it, but you were overturned key parts of Roe, which is true. Um, so he kind of, he, he dismantles all of that and then ultimately says, abortion is a moral decision and the U.S. Supreme Court is not the body to make that moral decision for the people. The people in each state should vote and decide for themselves. And he criticizes the court in Casey from, and I thought this was interesting. In Casey, the court actually said, we're going to settle the debate once and for all. Everyone can stop fighting about this. And it made a compromise and said, you know, this is, this is the line. And now everyone is, should be happy. And Alito says, of course, that didn't work because that's not our job. So this is interesting because it, it brings up kind of like what other federal laws are there that are based on moral decisions. And right. I mean, one that immediately comes to mind is gay marriage. But I, you kind of wonder, like, how, how similar is that in the sense where I think we can all kind of look at how there was specific discrimination against gay couples living together um that was rightfully overturned you know i think most people would agree with that it was overlooked for years unfortunately but one that comes to mind is specifically um from what i remember if there were a, a gay couple living together and one of them passed away they wouldn't even be able to tell like put their partner in their will like it would just go back to their family and then their family would decide things like that that obviously you're kind of like well yeah that obviously, I mean, that's a human right, like to be able to do that. Like it shouldn't, you should have a decision on who you want to give your things to or, or whatever along those lines. And um, I can't remember, there was one other that, that along those lines too, where, oh, it was like tax, like tax purposes, tax breaks and things like that. Like, yeah. sure. Yeah. Like, I think that was something that most of us agreed on. But then when it comes to like the, from a national perspective saying, all states must allow this, that does kind of make it a little bit more moral. I don't know. Well, and Josh was just saying a few minutes ago that this this potential decision, if it if it does end up being voted on and and put into law, case law, that it won't undo other cases. But I don't if it creates the precedent that there's not if there's not a specific constitutional right that the federal government can't make that decision, the Supreme Court. So can't, wouldn't it? I mean, well, I don't think it's, it I don't think it's doing that. Um, taking another tortured analogy, you know, if you think of case laws, like I, I used a tower where one, one block is, yeah. the other. 
I think maybe a better one would be a tree where um, you know you have roots, but then there are branches, and and we could. I mean, I think we'd need to really get into the particular constitutional provisions that are mentioned or not mentioned in Roe to really see how I don't think this decision is is that big a threat to these others because Roe is a branch that went off and um, hasn't really been a part, at least judges, since Roe has been decided from the cases that I've read, judges aren't very eager to cite it and rely on it Mm. because it just, it's never been, I mean, the logic, the reasoning of Roe is, is weak. And so, well, can you get into that real quick? What what makes it weak? I don't know if we've actually dre- addressed that head on. So it's so here's the biggest the biggest thing that Roe. Um, I think the best way to to show that it's weak is comparing it to maybe marriage. Uh, a few years before Roe, I think it was sixty seven. There was a case called Loving versus Virginia, and that that struck down a anti uh segregation a, a mixed marriage ban law in Virginia where a black and white people couldn't be married and it did so you know relying on fundamental rights that that also isn't you know marriage isn't specifically mentioned in the constitution and it said um that this right to marriage of people being able to marry who they want is fundamental and and was part was kind of incorporated into the constitution um and so you have other cases you know the gay marriage cases of Bergefell that have kind of been more based on that that case um and the reason why that the reasoning there is strong is you can look at that that opinion and you can look at our nation's history and you can see that there clearly was this right from the beginning um and so Hmm. Let me back up. What Alito is not, he's not saying that just because it's not in the constitution doesn't mean it's not a protected right. Okay. And there are, there are provisions. There's the ninth amendment that reserves all other rights to the States. And so that's commonly used in some of these cases. Um, You have, and you know, you have other, other, you have the right to, you know the free the the First Amendment that gives you the right of you know religion, the right of free you know speech, the right to of association, um, some other some of these other rights. The right to association, for example, you know could be logically kind of brought maybe with marriage, where you can associate with who you want in that that way. I don't know if that's ever been used in that way, but some of these rights you can just look back to before the found the Revolutionary War, and you can connect it and say. You know, there was this, there, there, this has been a core of our, of our nation's history. There hasn't been a lot of controversy over this. Um, but can you do that with abortion? Mm-hmm. And Alito takes, a, goes, you know, takes a long time, you know, takes a lot of time and a lot of pages to explain that, um, you know, abortion wasn't happening, wasn't legalized in all of these states at the founding. Um it, in fact, when the 14th Amendment, which the, up until the Civil War and the 14th Amendment was enacted, 
uh, the Bill of Rights, the 10, you know, the first 10 amendments didn't apply to the states directly. And then the 14th amendment has kind of created a doorway where some of those things apply and prohibit states from doing stuff. When the 14th amendment was enacted in like the 1870s, you know, it was right after the civil war, probably 1864, because it was during the civil war. They just quickly did it. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) The, the, uh, when it was enacted, Alito mentions that there were like three fourths of the states had laws on the books prohibiting abortion. Um, and so that, I mean, he uses that to argue, look, this is clearly something that just because we have this constitution doesn't mean states couldn't prohibit abortion. Clearly they could. From the you know from the from the time that the Fourteenth Amendment was written, it was allowed. You don't have similar similar things. Um, you know, anyway, that's that's kind of the, that's the weakness of what Roe v. Wade did at the time Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. Thirty states prohibited abortion. So, can you really say that it was a fundamental decided thing among the you know among the, no. the nation? Yeah that abortion was a fundamental right. It's just, it's, it's different than. Is that when the Supreme court should chime in is when they think that it's something that is basically widespread and accepted. I don't think so. I don't think the Supreme court should ever try to gauge. That's the problem that Roe v. Wade did. One of the passages in Roe v. Wade said some of the, in recent years, states have repealed these laws and that's true. You know, it was the three fourths. Yeah. Yeah. Is that some, um, some sort of indication that they then step in? No, it shouldn't be. What The way it should work is there's a constitutional amendment and, and we can change, you can change the constitution. People, people always say that's just too hard to do, but the reason it's too hard to do is because you need, um, you, know, you need, what is it? Two thirds of the vote of Congress and then three fourths of the states to approve it. And if it's not that hugely popular, then it's not going to happen. And yeah, so happen, yeah. ultimately the argument is not enough people want it. And so it's impossible, but that that's the reason why it doesn't happen. It's what, because the people don't want it. What I want to know is, is why, like, why is it that we, it's so necessary for the Supreme court to step in on some things like this? Like, why isn't it more fundamental that you just, kind of pick the state you want to be in based off of kind of the laws that it has control over. Like, it kind of seems like we, we have a very ambiguous way of living in this country because there are some laws that apply on a national level and some on a state level. And you don't really know. It's kind of hard to gauge which one's which sometimes. And, and it seems like there's a lot of crossover at times too. And it's like, why, why does, why does the Supreme Court chime in on something like abortion on a national level, um, but not on other moral issues that exist? Uh, I mean, you're, if the question is why does the Supreme Court do it, a conservative a jurist would say they shouldn't ever. Um, the only the only moral. I mean, all laws are, when you get down to it, are moral, even murder laws against murder were, <laughs> are, based on, <laughs> are based on the idea that you shouldn't kill somebody. Right. But 
It, and if he picked the most moral law, right? That's what I'm. Uh, oh, you're saying it's not a good example. It's yeah. low hanging yeah. fruit. But anyway, yeah. we're not going to we 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 addressed this last episode with you guys yeah. a little bit. So, but nice uh, to see that nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like what I, the reason I like murder is because it's so obvious. it's so obvious. Nobody nobody argues that murder shouldn't be. Um, well, I don't know, man. Have you read First Nephi? <laughs> well, well is that I've, murder this might not even relate but i've seen people arguing like oh you know such and such person has estimated that whether abortion is legal or not doesn't change the number of abortions that happen and that's so funny because so should we just legalize all crime because crime still happens when it's not illegal. yeah it's, it's, it's just a silly sorry, that's a bad argument. silly side note yeah no it's I mean, what was in, I think part of the fundamental problem with, with Roe versus Wade was what we kind of talked about the last episode was that it was the first time when the, when any type of lawmaker, that's not true actually, because I guess there were states that were banning it, but um, the Supreme Court steps in and makes, makes a law that all of a sudden starts to affect another life or at least potential to life at a at a certain point um negatively or and without their consent or say well that's i and i i mean slavery i guess i should say but well and in my kind of rambling response to your the weaknesses of roe earlier i think you just hit at the core and what i was you know trying to get to and then i got derailed but what what makes roe so weak is that it recognizes that is that problem, that dilemma that you just touched upon that it's not just one person here. Um, and so Roe v. Wade came up with this three trimester approach where you can do certain thing. You can prohibit certain things in the first trimester, other things in the second, other things in the third, but um, you know, you can't do anything after viability once the the baby is you know the i think it says fetus in the in the which has had, which has been something that's evolved over time with medical technology and things like that like viability right. is it's, it's well, we don't know and where's the legal precedent for viability yeah um, i mean they they kind of just created a lot and of that's what, been thrown out the window anyway, right? I mean, aren't there actual exactly, states that have, that have laws that say doctors can't actually save a child if it survives an abortion? I think I've heard that. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but have you guys heard that? I've heard of that. I'm not sure. I don't know the, the details. I know that that's a, yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough to get into that. Anyway. Yeah. So, and so it's just, it's anytime a judge is acting like a, a legislator and creating Generally, legal opinion should be broad legal principles that can be broadly applied. When you get a judge saying, here are the restrictions, you know, specific A, B, and C, this is this must happen before this can happen in a way that it kind of it kind of reads like a law that's passed by the legislature. I think a lot of lawyers get uncomfortable because it's it's clearly they're they're stepping out of the courtroom into into the hall of Congress and kind of passing their own law. Yeah. And that's what Roe v. Wade did is they created this whole scheme out of whole cloth that that wasn't based on precedent. It was just like 
we've recognized a, a, a kind of an ambiguous right to privacy in other areas that aren't at issue here. And we're going to grab that and run with it and just, and really take the keys out of the hands of, of the people in, you know, voting in the States and of the federal legislature. And we're just going to decide that this is what, this is when it's, it, it's not permitted. The, the, the craziest, I mean, I don't know what's crazier. The fact that they able, felt like they got to a point where they could pass it or the fact that they even wanted to take it to the Supreme Court that they said, well, okay, yeah, let's, let's actually make a decision on this. Cause that's pretty nuts too. Like that, that the fact that they felt like they needed to intervene is almost just as crazy as the fact that they did pass it at the time. I don't know. Am I crazy? Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know. I wasn't alive back then. I, I imagine if st- some states were repealing it, that it was, there was popular support for legalizing abortion in the states. And I think a, an unfortunate trend in, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century is that people, I think people got frustrated with the political process and with the, you know, with democracy and having to, to deal with the majority rule that they found it was easier if you could just convince nine people that mm-hmm. you share your views. And that's, and unfortunately that's not, that's kind of a, you don't see a lot of pushes by for hot button issues to go to the States and, and make the changes among the 50 States. It's all, let's go straight to the Supreme court and have the Supreme court solve all our problems. And that's never how it was intended to be. Right. In fact, now, I know you guys probably won't want to chime in on this, but one thing that Ben Shapiro has said that is interesting, and I don't know enough about the law nor the history of the Supreme Court to really know this, but I just know he said it, is that in terms of it being weaponized, it seems like it's always kind of been an arm of the left in order to enact more kind of progressive policies on a national scale, which, I like I said, I can really only take his word for it, but um, which kind of makes sense because fundamentally... Uh, conservatism is opposed to a Supreme Court, right? Opposed I mean, to a they, Supreme Court? Kind of, right? I mean, like their idea is like states' rights, like that on a fundamental basis for the Republican Party, at least. Now, I know Republicanism well, and conservatism can be two different things, but yeah. there's a lot of crossover, I, obviously. I see what you're saying. I mean, I think, I think a true conservative, true Republican would understand that there is a a role for the federal government. There is, limit. but not nearly to the degree that we've utilized it. It seems like, exactly. right. So I yeah. think, I think what a Republican conservative would say is that there is a role for a, the U S Supreme court, but it should be limited to resolving disputes between States. It should be uh, used to resolve disputes about federal laws, you know, passed by the federal Congress, the, um, and disputes about probably foreign affairs yeah. and that's it if it's if it's something in the states you know about state laws contracts things like that that's probably should be in the state and and frankly for the most part that's that is how it works um the reason the u.s the supreme court gets involved in these types of issues is because people try to grab the u.s constitution which is a federal law and try to make it apply to these state laws. Yeah. So the gist of everything, basically, for Roe v. Wade being overturned, which it, it cuts both ways to some degree. Like, it's not necessarily like, oh, those that were for abortion, all of a sudden, like, they just get, like, in your face. It's kind of like, well, at the same time, 
the, those on the conservative aisle, like this isn't necessarily a, I mean, in a large, in large part, it is kind of a win for pro-lifers, but at the same time, it's more nuanced than that because like the, the Supreme court conservatives aren't saying we're, we're against abortion. We're just saying, Hey, like we're leaving it to the States. So whichever state wants to enact their own laws, however extreme they may be like they're, they can do that. And so you actually might see a swinging of the pendulum where they're become even more extreme is one way of putting it extreme allowances of abortion to take place in specific States. That's what the Supreme court is kind of opening up the door for. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but it's a win for freedom. Like, I don't know why it's so controversial. It's a win for more freedom for us. But it's kind of funny when it came on the back of of Elon Musk buying Twitter to make that more free. And people were just so upset about that, too. It's like, I don't understand. Why are we getting upset that there's more freedom being offered? Well, I have a I have a theory that goes deep about all this, and I think it's that at the end of the day, it's the natural man's inclination to actually have restrictions placed on them, so they don't have to have to pay for their own sins as much. Maybe. Interesting. That's based on the end of Mosiah, where King uh, King Mosiah uh, the second says, uh, kind of gives that whole speech to his people, and he says, "It's not. It's like it's not good for you guys to have a king because it, the sins of of." your sins need to fall on your own heads and not that of your king. I like that. Interesting. I mean, I like that. I kind of looked at that too, through the lens of just Satan's plan in the war in heaven. It was, yeah. It was it's a limiting agency, that. right? Yeah. It's the same idea. And, Is you, that... know, you get a third part of, of the hosts of heaven that really liked that idea. Yeah. And in fact, I would even argue that those, the third of the, the hosts of heaven weren't saying it because they were evil necessarily. They were saying, I don't want to have agency because it, that'll make life so much harder. I don't yeah. want to have to be responsible for my own actions. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and to give it any more charitable light, I don't want others to suffer. I, you know, it's not just that I don't want to suffer. I, I'd like to live possible. in a world. Where, yeah. Like, I don't want to live in a world that has pain and suffering. I want everything to just, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know how much we want to try and exonerate them, so to speak. But no, well, the reason I, I say that is because I, I see that natural inclination creep up when I've discussed with other with friends, you know, with members of the church who are, you know, when we discuss politics, that kind of creeps in when they're when they're more on the left with larger government programs and larger control by the government. Um, the argument usually goes along the lines of you know, maybe with like welfare programs and stuff is that we, it would be nice if everybody would just do their part and, and serve everybody and we could have all things in common. But if we're not doing it, you know, as a society, we can vote, you know, vote to have a system where at least somebody takes care of the poor and that there's not, we don't just, it's, it's too cold and heartless to just let people go hungry. Right. You know, and, and, I don't know. You can see the logical extension of that is if we continually just delegate that that obligation to a government or to somebody else in power that kind of rules, eventually you don't have, you, you give up all your freedom in exchange for everybody kind of having a a, a safety. And, and Yeah, I mean, that's the only reason why I think communism still gets any play right now is it's under the guise of charity. And I hate 
the comparison when people are like, oh, it's just like the law of consecration. And it's like, oh, really? You think this can actually be run by perfect human beings? Is that (laughs) what you're telling me right now? But, um, well, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I actually think it was relevant. I think that's interesting too. But so we've covered kind of the gist of it, of terms of it being like a weird legal precedent and very ambiguous. And that the Supreme Court currently, and especially the, the conservatives on the Supreme Court, are not overturning it because they just are pro-lifers that hate abortion. It's, they're overturning it because they're saying this is such a polarizing law that from a na- if you're to put it on enacted on a national scale, you're going to have so many people be pushing back on it and saying, I don't want to live in a country like this or whatever, vice versa. So let's make it a state's issue. And that way, then it becomes a little bit more relegated. And as you've noted before, like you actually try and get more involved with your representatives, those that you vote for specifically that are supposed to kind of lead you in the way that you want to be led, all that stuff, which makes just makes conceptually makes so much more sense to me. But one thing I want to ask you as we kind of wrap it up here, um, the leak itself is unprecedented. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that because that's like, that's, it's kind of glossed over. I mean, obviously a lot of the conservatives are noting that we're like, how did this get leaked all of a sudden? But that is actually really kind of scary to think about. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I clerked at the Utah Supreme court, which as far as like the importance, of not, yeah, the importance of not leaking things. I mean, it was, we emphasized it on day one. Uh, I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like if a, an LDS person were to talk about temple things that were supposed <laughs> to keep sacred, at least to mm. me as a lawyer, it's, like you just don't do that. We, I would tell the horror story I'd use to scare our interns to be, you know, so they'd be very careful, you know, cause they're, they're excited to come into the Utah Supreme court and watch all of that and to be in the inner delivery. The yeah, exactly. Um, but we would, we'd explain that, you know, one time an intern just mentioned that they were involved with a case dealing with, um, you know, X issue didn't mention the case or the parties, but was discussing that in their law school class and it was relevant to the class discussion. And, but the legal community in Utah is so small that the law professor was able to see, Oh, I know what case that is make a guess based on the, who this intern was, you know, interning with that, that justice was going to be the authoring justice that it was probably going to go that way. One thing led to the other, to another and the case settled because the parties made assumptions before the case was issued um, based on, you know, what they thought was going to happen because they thought they knew who was authoring the opinion. And, and so that was in each case is very important to the parties involved, but nothing that the Utah Supreme court deals with is as big a deal as this abortion issue at a national level. Like it's most of our cases weren't reported on by even KSL, you know, the local news, but here you have Politico, you have CNN, like everybody wants to know for most of the U S Supreme court cases, what's going on in there. And so knowing how much we, how big a deal, you know, secrecy was with us and, and keeping all of that confidential and not even giving hints to anybody of what's going on. I can only imagine it was 10 times bigger. Among oh, I'm sure. the, and and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine that happening 
when I was working at the Utah Supreme Court. And so, I mean, I can only just extrapolate based on my experience of what, what it must be like to be a clerk right now at the U.S. Supreme Court, the chaos that was probably going on, the, I mean, there, I'm, yeah, I'm a lot of drama in chambers there. Yeah, you'd think like are they gonna aren't they doing an investigation to try and find out like who's responsible? They are, but that's the other thing is they they're the person that's doing it. Now I I can't remember what her name is, what her title is, but I think it was a mar- court marshal. Yeah, the, the court marshal, the marshal. I think it was a marshal, and that's her name, and she's I think highly. Oh, sorry, that's her title, and she's highly qualified for that position. Or Marshall but... Marsha. <laughs> yeah, Marsha Marshall. But she is not an investigator. She is not. We have we had a clerk of court who kind of ran, did the administration at the U- Utah Supreme Court. Very competent, um, handled kind of the administrative stuff. Like the marshal at the U.S. Supreme Court, she'd come in when oral argument would start and kind of read in the justices. You know, at the U. I thought I thought though that the they were the marshals like the law. So she does. She has she has supervision over the security, but that's not my understanding. Oh. Is that's not her primary like role. Like hmm. she that wasn't that's not her background. I think she has a law degree. She was in the U.S. Uh, Army's like legal program. I don't think her primary, I don't think she's been an investigator, a policeman. So basically you're saying like, it's nothing's going to come of this. It's like, I wouldn't, very I wouldn't be surprised. And they, they keep talking about how the, the world of, of people and that have access to this is small, but it's probably not as small as they think. I mean, you have, you have the clerks and the justices, which is relatively small a number. You have nine justices, probably four, five clerks per justice. Per so, justice. And then, then you have, yeah, then you have secretaries and other staff. You maybe will have, um, it looks like what was leaked was a, a hard copy that was like scanned in. If you look at the actual leaked document, it looks, it wasn't just like digitally sent. Hmm. And so, I mean, you have custodial staff that probably have, you know, they have their ID badge. They get in there and clean each night. If one of the clerks left this opinion on their desk, you know, I bet a, I bet a janitor could have gotten a ton of money selling this to Politico. Mm. Interesting. Job, but, yeah. And I don't know how you'd ever track that if they just grabbed something that was sitting, you know, a loose opinion that was sitting or maybe it was thrown into the trash because they had read through it. You know, like it, it's possible that they were sloppy and, and we'll figure out who leaked it. But I also mm. worry that we'll never figure that out. Yeah. And now we're seeing uh protests outside of justice's houses and everything i know there was talks of maybe speeding it up are they planning on doing that that you know of i don't know i mean i know that chief justice roberts his official statement is he said this is not going to affect our deliberations in any way it's not going to affect our procedures in any way and that doesn't surprise me uh, i think they'll just try to act as if nothing happened and it might be released at the end of their term probably the last day of their term in in uh, what end of june probably so that's the expectation that that'll officially be the and the day that happens there are those laws that exist where states immediately will like i can't remember uh, what those laws are trigger, called the trigger laws the trigger laws that's it prohibit abortion yeah oh, yeah 
Fascinating. I'd imagine Utah has one. I don't know, actually. I wouldn't surprise me if they didn't, though, because we're we're conservative, but we also don't. I think we have a very conservative state and house. I think we do right now. State Senate and uh, state house. Yeah, I know we're conservative, but we don't seem to. I don't know anything. I don't know if we have a trigger law, but like we're not we're not passing. I've started, maybe I'm, I'm back. I'm thinking back on the, we're not like, you know, Florida or like some of these States that are passing the really controversial laws that, that get into the news. That's true. Right. I feel, yeah. I feel that, like we usually take a little, a more moderate approach to, to a lot. That of may things. be right to some degree. I mean, Cox certainly is more moderate, but I think everybody but, underneath him is pretty dang conservative. But with that said, I, I mean, I, I think, I don't think this is a an extreme law and it's been on the it could have been on the books for years in Utah. Yeah. Well, was there anything more you wanted to add to this before we wrap it up? No. One thing that I haven't heard anyone talk about that has driven me crazy is Politico's false headline. Yeah. The Supreme Court Politico's headline was completely a lie. The Supreme Court has not voted. To overturn Roe v. Wade. Oh, One gotcha. Supreme Court justice has written a draft that would do that. That's just a side note that's really bothered me. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get into the the strategy that might be behind this, which is an, another interesting conversation probably for another well, day. Give me a little tidbit, though. What is the strategy that might be behind it? Well, no one. I mean, it's just speculation. But, I mean, the people on the left or the people on the right are saying it was done to intimidate the justices, right? And you Oh, yeah. Yeah, that. I heard that. Yeah. People on the left are saying it was done to solidify the positions of the justices on the right as a way to say, have you not heard this theory? It, no. I've heard it in a few places where they're, they're arguing that, say, some conservative clerk, you know, Justice Alito's clerk, maybe he's even the one that ghost wrote it because that's why, you know, the clerks usually take the first crack at drafting the opinion and then they send it to their justice and the justice edits it. Maybe that clerk really liked it and thought if we can get it out there, there's now political pressure on these justices to not flip flop. And, and that I don't, honestly, I don't, I think that's, I don't, I, that's pretty outlandish. I think, I think so. I think I don't, I mean, it's in the realm of possibility. If you had a really do you, um, do you get nailed to the wall more for being a flip-flop or do you become heralded as a hero if you actually flip-flop? Well, you don't know when judges flip-flop because all of that voting... Yeah, and we actually don't have the names tied to it, right? But we do. I mean, we... I, think I mean, we, we, we can venture a guess for sure, but I mean, like, we don't officially know who's what, right? No, we don't. We well, don't. we don't know who's... Besides Alito. ...among the deliberations before an opinion's... Right. Issue. Well, we wouldn't, except for this opinion was issued and it was labeled as majority. And so we know we have five justices right. that but, initially voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. But for this leak, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know who's saying, yes, I'm going to agree, and then it's going to change their mind and say, no, I, I don't agree anymore. Well, we would. So say this, this one's leaked in February, and then the majority opinion issues in June, and it's not this, right. doesn't so, overturn it. So any opinion that's not leaked, we don't have that information about right but if it's leaked and that's that's and that's the impetus behind the the theory that a conservative did it is Mm. okay so you're just 
backing up. I thought you were I was responding to that. Harper's question. It, is it frowned upon to be a flip-flopper? And I was saying, well, we don't know. I think well, well, that's the thing. We wouldn't know who was actually flip-flopping. But also, I mean, you could probably guess. You could probably narrow it down. But then my, my overall point was that I think it is frowned upon, but I don't think it's as frowned upon as much as it would be heralded to be a flip-flopper in this scenario. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, like the people on the left side of the aisle would like put prop this person up as a hero immediately. I think, well, I think we have a good example because when Obamacare, that case, the Obamacare case was decided and, and that was uh, Roberts, right? Roberts uh, crafted it and it was leaked after it was issued. Somebody talked and said it was originally going the other way. They were going to strike down Obamacare, but at the 11th hour, Roberts kind of crafted this backroom deal to compromise and save the deal based on what they had to do is declare it a tax. And Obama did not want it called a tax because mm. it was not popular politically. But that was the one saving, you know, if you could construe it as a tax, then it was a constitutional. Right. So it came out that Roberts has done that. And I think it's kind of tarnished Roberts, his legacy, because it doesn't look very principled. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, as a legal thinker, it seems like he's just playing politics, right. which is a dirty word for these justices. And that's why they're, the fear of flip-flopping would be there. Um, and he was conservative. And now the right doesn't really love him. He's not embraced by the left because he's not on the left. So he's kind of just in no man's land. And, and you could see a, another flip-flop. If somebody that's more firmly on the right did flip-flop here, they would they wouldn't be embraced by the left, but then they'd be cast out by the right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. All right. So the five justices that we think have got to be, obviously we know, we know Alito and then Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, and um, of course, Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Those are the, those have got to be the five, right? There's no way Roberts is one of them. It, no, and it's, it seems like the kind of the floodgates opened after this leaked because I heard that there's another somebody talked and said that Roberts is trying to get a coalition similar to what he did with Obamacare to save Roe in name, but but uphold the Mississippi law. You know, it would it would it would be kind of that just sounds stupid. But anyway, well, in our last podcast, that's what I that's what I thought was going to happen. Honestly, really. I didn't think I didn't think Roe would be overturned all the way because of stare decisis. I thought they'd do something kind of a more conservative, modest approach, kind of like what they did with Roe with Casey, which which is they altered and struck down parts of Roe um, and then upheld what they called its core holding. I thought they'd do something similar here, but really weaken it. Say 15 weeks is enough. It's constitutional, but there's still some amorphous gotcha. right to abortion. Yeah. And that's what Robert seems like he's trying to do, but I doubt at this point he could get it. I think you're right. At this point, it does kind of seem like there's no turning back now, but eh, who knows? A lot could happen in a month and a half, but hopefully not in my mind. But right. Well, Josh and Taylor, thank you so much again for taking the time. I know you're busy parents. How's, how's little Royal doing? He's so good. He's oh. a good boy. I'm sure he is. Yeah. Is he gonna is he gonna be a lawyer someday? He bet he better be. <laughs> oh, you're you're the only lawyer that actually wants this kid to be a lawyer, from what I understand. Maybe not actually. Yeah, there might be plenty of them. It's, it's weird, but Taylor's dad's a lawyer. Oh really? Yeah. 
I just know every lawyer that I've ever known basically is very vocal about hating it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a thing. But it's kind of like parents always complaining about their kids. Good point. Like, I've never heard you guys complain about being lawyers, and I've spoken to Josh a lot, so that do- really does say something. I he think. Loves it. I and I like parts of it. <laughs> Josh, you're just you're just a freaking law nerd, dude. I am legal nerd. I, I like the law. My goodness. No, it's pretty. It's actually impressive to see, man. So I, I hope you we need judges a- like you. If that's the goal, I hope I hope that happens. I hope you don't have really like detail-oriented, you know, angry listeners that are going to go and fact-check me on dates and stuff. Cause I, I kind of hope I do. <laughs> I know we do. <laughs> do you ever get emails complaining about things you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten a few. I've got some, I've got some nasty feedback. Most of it is positive though. If I, if I ever have like somewhat of a controversial thing to say, I usually get more people reaching out saying, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it and this and that. But I still have a select few that are like, could not disagree more, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Most of those are even cordial. And then a couple of those are not. And they just want to like lambast me as much as possible and say all sorts of insulting things or whatever. But I I mean, that's what I, I signed up for that. I'm not complaining about that. I, I, if you are going to be so, um, what's the word, you know, bold is to put a podcast out there, then you know what? It's up for scrutiny. I get right. it. So it is what it is. That's right. Exactly. All about it. <laughs> That's right. All about it. Freedom. God bless America. Anyway, thank you both once again. Um, if there's any other thing that like you want to come back on, by all means, you let me know because I love having you guys on and you guys are both experts. So I said hey. it. You are. <laughs> <laughs> Josh. Thanks, Harper. Thank All right. You. Thanks, guys. You have a good night. Talk to you later. To a different time. Oh, love, I remember falling so madly. There must have been magic in the valley and a rhythm in the night. Cause I could almost see it. Did you fade right? takes time